Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The pandemic is like a hurricane or a cyclone. It flattens everything that it comes across. Um, And there's no doubt that in the post-pandemic world, there's going to be a need to rebuild, to rethink, to re-innovate much of our economy and perhaps much of our society. So where's that innovation going to come from? Is the heart of the post-pandemic world going to still be Silicon Valley with its model of innovation? Or will there be other centers of innovation, perhaps Delhi or Detroit or Bangalore or Sao Paulo or Singapore, which will be centers of the post-pandemic innovative world? Uh, Alexandra Lazarow um, is uh, a cafe innovation venture capitalist, uh, as well as a writer. Uh, He has a new book out, uh, Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So a timely book at a time when the world does indeed need to be rebuilt and we do need to innovate and out-innovate one another. Um, Alex, uh, your new book, which is published by Harvard Business Review, which actually uh, came out of a, um, a competition, you entered an essay for, for the McKinsey FT Award, uh, speaks of a new world in which perhaps uh, the, the rules of Silicon Valley no longer apply. Uh, before we get to this world, tell me what those old rules are. How did the old world of innovation work? What are the rules of Silicon Valley? Yeah, it's, it's such a prescient question right now as the world is changing. So I've always spent my life with one foot in the valley and one foot both investing in startups around the world, as well as, you know, outside of work, I also teach an MBA class on entrepreneurship, um, where many of my students were, you know, like me moving back to their hometowns. I, you know, I'm from the Midwest, so moving back there or moving to an emerging market. And, you know, like you said, there's really this dichotomy of experience between the two. In the Valley, I think we have this fount of best practice that exists has been codified on how to build businesses in an ecosystem of abundance where there is a lot of capital, where there is depth of trained startup human capital abounds, where there is uh, a range of corporate support, where um, we have by and large a generally stable ecosystem in which to build. And in that context, we have codified what best practice looks like. And so a startup, for instance, can scale as quickly as possible, growth at all costs. It's okay if it burns a lot of capital or it subsidizes user acquisition because there's capital along the stack to support the entrepreneur to grow. It's okay if employee turnover is relatively short because there's a very big depth of human capital in the ecosystem. And the entire game is placed around that. And what I was observing, and just to put this in relief, is many of my students you know, we're going off and I kept wanting to sign them 
books on the best practice on how to build startups, how to innovate. But everything I had was context specific. It was things like Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman and Chris Yeh, fabulous book, but works extraordinarily well in a very particular ecosystem and very particular types of companies. Or, you know, whichever other kind of books like Ben Horowitz is the hard thing about hard things or what have you. And in every one of those situations, I always felt like I had to share and codify some other types of best practice for ecosystems where there just was less capital or there was less depth of trained human capital or what have you. And I believe the best entrepreneurs operating in Detroit or Chicago or Amsterdam or Bangalore or Nairobi have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet no one is telling their stories. And I think that taken together, what they're working on is not only challenging some of these hard-won conventional wisdoms, and instead, in many ways, taking together or reinventing the playbook for innovation as a whole. Alex, uh, what you're doing is interesting, but it's, it's, it's been done before in some ways. I mean, uh, I know Steve Case has been pioneering this idea. Uh, we had Chris Schroeder uh, on the show a few weeks ago who speaks about the same thing. I'm curious as to how you imagine the pandemic will change the rules of the startup world, how it will change the challenges and opportunities of innovation. Yeah. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of both the Rise Arrest movement here in the US and Chris Schroeder's work globally, and particularly in the in the Middle East. And I think that, you know, there are great examples of the the voices that are starting to be t- talking about this and are pushing this movement forward. And, you know, I suspect if you fast forward 10 years from now, uh, that will be a much bigger voice uh, as a whole. And, you know, to, to your point, when I actually think many of these lessons to navigate the pandemic are more relevant today than ever before. Um, in the book, I talk a lot about how in the Valley, instead of building unicorns, entrepreneurs are building camels. Let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit what I mean by that. And in, in the value of this, this notion of uh, growth at all costs, like I was alluding to before. And, uh, and in many emerging ecosystems, entrepreneurs are focusing on building sustainability and resilience into the business model from the get-go. And that means, for instance, uh, charging for the value you, um, you are providing to entrepreneurs and really thinking about unit economics that work throughout the journey, including from the get-go. Second, you know, thinking about burn and managing it along the way. Third, taking a long-term view to building your startup. Um, one, of the, one of the stories I really like uh, in, in the book is the story of Grubhub. I interviewed Mike Evans, the COO and co-founder, and he talked a lot about their fundraising journey. You know, when I think of on-demand delivery, I naturally think of venture subsidized models, but, uh, you know, think of DoorDash raised $1.5 billion. Grubhub raised a paltry $80 million of venture before its IPO. And Mike talks a lot about how every one of his fundraisers, he was profitable and sustainable. And every single fundraiser was for a very specific purpose. It was to expand to a couple other cities. It was to uh, scale uh, and, per- and make a small acquisition or what have you. And I think that's kind of a model that we're going to see a lot more of, where we're going to build still for growth, still looking for network effects, still working for a lot of things that get a scale over time, but taking a little bit of a longer term view and a more balanced growth approach. Um, and so that's one element where I think we're going to see a, a, a lesson in a model. Um, around the world, entrepreneurs are looking for a model do you agree with my metaphor as the pandemic, as a, a cyclone or a hurricane, uh, flattening everything in its path? Do you imagine a world in 2022 or 2023 that's going to need to be fundamentally rebuilt? 
whole areas of the economy from healthcare to retail to government itself, perhaps? Or do you, uh, and, and not to mention the travel and, and transportation business, or do you imagine that the post-pandemic world will splutter back to life slowly but surely, and by 2023 or 2024, uh, our economies won't look dramatically different from today? I'm not sure it's black or white, and and if it's going to be one or the other. I think that one of the things that I'm really excited about is how in the pandemic world, I think we're laying bare some of the biggest challenges in the economy. Those challenges that we're seeing right now are not new, right? It is not new that we have insufficient healthcare for folks. It's not new that we haven't figured out how to uh, provide future of work and, 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 and give folks a really good career and manage uh, and provide financial inclusion. Like none of those challenges are new. I think the pandemic has exposed our failure to solve them. And so one of the things that I'm optimistic for is that we're going to see coming out of the the crisis, a range of entrepreneurs that are going to come out and uh, be creators. They're going to, instead of looking to disrupt existing industries that have not been able to solve those problems, they're going to take a new and fresh lens of creativity towards it and find new product categories that haven't solved before, figure out a, a business model that has impact, that manages uh, hopefully some of the uh, some of the challenges, negative externalities of their businesses, but are able to scale. And so that's one of the things that I, I think um, is my optimistic side is I think it's going to lay bare some opportunities that we'll be able to solve. Obviously, um, there's a bunch of other challenges we could talk at length about, but I think that's the bit that gives me optimism coming out of the crisis. A couple of years ago, Alex, I did an event in um, in Atlanta with some startup entrepreneurs. And, and I've done a lot, as you know, in, in Silicon Valley, is where I'm based. Uh, and I was really struck with how the Atlanta startup entrepreneurs were really focused on community, on the challenges of social, political, economic challenges, particularly for the, the less privileged in Atlanta. Uh, in your book and in your experience, are entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs in a place like Detroit, for example, which is mentioned in, in the subtitle of your book, are they more grounded in ordinary people's problems and challenges than the entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley who, who always come up with concepts like, you know, Uber, which are, are suitable for, for, for a, a sort of a, a, an elite, but not for ordinary people. One of the reasons I think that innovation must become global and, uh, and entrepreneurs everywhere need to be supported is because you solve the problems that you know. And one of the things, one of the reasons and one of the criticisms for the Valley is that the set of problems that the Valley is solving are mm. germane to the Silicon Valley ecosystem. But I believe that if you support innovation in Atlanta or in Detroit or whatever, a different set of problems exist. And entrepreneurs that are in that ecosystem steeped in their community will understand it, will be able to build a product that will be welcomed and accepted and people will pay for, and that will give rise to, to business models. One of the things that I've observed around the world is that historically, we had this conception that the Valley was the place where innovation came from, and it was replicated, replicated or copied elsewhere. That has totally changed today, where the best ideas today are global. Increasingly, actually, they're getting adapted and improved around the world as well. The ride-sharing model that you mentioned, one of the things that's actually really interesting about it is that it was, it was invented in, in the Valley, right? Uber and Lyft, but it was actually replicated in a bunch of different places, but actually improved 
elsewhere. Today, the biggest ride-sharing business in the world is in China. It's Didi. Um, in the book, I tell the story of the company Gojek in Indonesia, which took the ride-sharing model, applied it to Ojeks, little motorcycle taxis, and totally rethought it as well. The CEO, Nadim, talked about how he wanted to give uh, an ecosystem activities to his drivers throughout the day. So in the morning, they would drive people to work. Um, at lunch, they would deliver food. After work, they'd drive them home. They would deliver dinner. Throughout the day, they would offer financial inclusion products, e-commerce delivery. They thought about this full ecosystem for the drivers. That model, in turn, has now influenced the rest of the world. It's no surprise that Uber has UberX and the Uber credit card and things like that. And so that's what we're seeing is actually through the globalization of ideas. One, we're getting better ideas coming from everywhere. And two, those ideas get improved around the world. And so that's why I think it's really important that places like Detroit and Atlanta get more funding. Alex, one of the great critiques, you know this as well as anyone, of Silicon Valley is it's male-dominated. It discriminates against women. And many women have had awful experiences, different kinds of experiences, sexual and, and otherwise in, in Silicon Valley. Um, in, in, in your book and in your experiences about innovating, how can a, a more a balanced level field, a, a, a more balanced playing field in terms of men and women and investing in male and female entrepreneurs result in rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley and addressing some of the bigger problems in the world. Yeah. And, and by the way, I totally agree. This is a incredible challenge. It isn't just within companies. It's at the leadership level of companies. It's with VCs. Um, and I think that with greater diversity across all of those, we'll have both greater diversity ideas. We'll have, um, obviously, managing some of the some of the things that that have happened that that need to be solved. So I think one, you know, I, I think we need to take a moment and 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 really put a nod to that on, on how important it is to solve. One of the things, by the way, is just tying it back to the point of the pandemic that gives me hope is that I think that some of the things that are getting accelerated right now, notably distributed teams, is a powerful tool to help to help with some of this. Um, where with distributed teams, one uh, you know, through Zoom, it makes it easier for uh, founders in places outside the Valley to get access. It's an incredible leveler. As a VC, the, uh, the amount of work and the interaction is no different if the founders in the Valley or somewhere else uh, for me to, to get to know folks. And so I'm optimistic that that'll help um, give access beyond the Valley and solve that bit of it. But two, actually, among remote companies, there's actually a much stronger level of diversity. And I think one of the reasons is because people are judged by the outputs of their work rather than preconceptions in there. And I'm, I'm hopeful that coming out of this, we're going to start to see a, little bit, see a little bit of a cultural shift where we're going to judge a lot more on the, on the outputs of work and distributed teams can be part of the solution um, as well. And so, you know, I, I, I think this is one of these challenges that's going to, uh, that hopefully we'll be able to solve coming out of this and to take your to take your analogy earlier, perhaps this will be one area where it'll be a hurricane and we'll be able to make some really big and meaningful changes very quickly. Uh, Alex, uh, yesterday I spoke with James Crabtree, the former Financial Times correspondent in, in, in India and the, uh, the author of Billionaire Raj. He recently wrote a piece in Foreign Policy magazine uh, entitled The End of Emerging Markets. He sees one of the consequences of the, uh, of, of the pandemic, of the drying up of capital for so-called emerging markets from Brazil to India to, uh, to Vietnam. How do you expect the 
the the pan the, the post pandemic world to be influenced in terms of access to capital. I know venture firms like Cafe Innovation are designed to be international, but is it possible that we'll see a drying up of capital? I think anything is possible, and the uh, and the gamut. Uh, of kind of capital in general for emerging markets is perhaps a little bit outside my expertise. But when it comes to venture capital specifically, for there, I'm actually continue to be optimistic. And I'll tell you why. Um, I think one, technology is an uncorrelated asset class that um, uh, to, uh, to other kind of investment areas. And I think a, an incredible amount, of, an incredible amount of money has been raised to support entrepreneurs there. Two, if anything, I actually think the venture capital opportunity in emerging markets is greater than it is because the opportunities are so much more greenfield. And you aren't competing with some of the biggest players. You're actually, in some cases, you know, in some of the sectors I've invested in behind, like fintech and healthcare, you're actually creating the market entirely. And so the opportunity is different. And three, I think the tailwinds are there, right? In many ecosystems, it's really tough to start. It's really tough to build the small community. But when you start getting exits and exits and a generation of angel investors that get minted and businesses that have scaled, that have trained folks on how to build startups, that wheel starts being in motion. And in my book, I explore what it takes to scale startup ecosystems. And one of the data points that's interesting is that after a certain amount of critical mass in a particular ecosystem, you start getting a exponential increase, right? So in China, you know, after five or six unicorns, the next year, it started being exponentially more. And I think we're going to see, continue seeing that. And, you know, perhaps what comes out of the crisis is people slow down uh, in the short term. But I think that the wheel is in motion and that folks are building, uh, building startups, realize the opportunity. And I think we're going to look back and we'll say, look, like, you know, 2020 was a hard, was a tough year. But, you know, 10 years from now, I think the trend will continue to be up and to the right with innovation ecosystems around the world, absolutely. Uh, like your friend Chris Schroeder, you're an unabashed defender of uh, globalism, globalization, and uh, international markets, and the free flowing of ideas. Are you concerned, Alex, though, that this pandemic seems to sh be shepherding in a new uh, generation of, of, of nationalist and, and increasingly autocratic political leaders from Beijing to Moscow to Hungary to Turkey to the Philippines to Brazil to the United States. Um, to what extent is political risk, if you like, built into your business model of investing in international startups? You know, I, I think in a lot of these situations, I think the risk is is real and it's tough. Um, I. <laughs> I, I like Chris Schroeder's phrase of being an unabashed, uh, unabashed and unapologetically um, globalist. And I think that at the end of the day, for every negative story, there are some really positive ones as well. And let me give you an example. As we're thinking about the coronavirus and how to solve it, what we're seeing is some of the most interesting advances are coming out of cross-border um, collaboration. Just last week, there was a big program in the tech community called the Global Hack that brought together people from all around the world to find solutions to solve these. And so, you know, I, I, I think things might happen in the political landscape, but the beauty of the internet and technology and that collaboration, 
um, has already started and the wheels are already in motion. So I, I, I don't think that'll stop it. I think um, in some cases it'll slow it down. It'll make it more difficult. It'll be tougher to implement, what have you. But, you know, I think in the long arc of history, I think, I think the wheels are in motion and, and I think that the benefits here are going to be really powerful. Alex, I know you're stuck in your house in uh, Mill Valley, uh, just north of San Francisco with a, a, a 10-week-old child. <laughs> Congratulations on that. But I'm sure there are moments where you need a little bit of time to get away from it. What are you reading at the moment? What suggestions for further reading on, on, uh, on, 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 on thinking and rethinking the post-pandemic world, uh, in addition, of course, to, to your new book, Out Innovate? Yeah, and I, and, I, and I wish with a 10-week-old I had more time to read. Um, but two books that I've really enjoyed, one is The Gene and Intimate History by uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, which is really beautifully written and really instructive on the history of genetics. And the second, which, is I, which I'm two-thirds through right now, is The Architecture, Architecture of Happiness by Alain de Botton, uh, which, is, uh, which is incredibly poetic prose around uh, what buildings mean to us and, and reflection on, on architecture and history. And so I, I recommend both of those. They've been they've been really interesting to me. Did the uh, did the book on happiness give you any business tips for investment? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I um, I spend most of my reading often reading in sectors that I'm not investing in directly, but that help shape my thinking. Um, but one of the things that shaped my thinking in that book was this notion that buildings, the way they are designed, in many ways. You know, we're building a gr the grandeur of a cathedral or the simplicity of a Swedish home or what happened. They are in some ways manifestations of culture, but in, real in reality, they're an extension. They are the, the pinnacle of what we're trying to achieve in a particular thing and hopefully give us an opportunity to improve as a result of being in their company, in their presence. And I actually think that's something where, you know, as you think about a business and a startup, culture and mission really have a similar role of being lofty and being ambitious and being a little bit more than, than what you can realistically do. And in some cases, a lot more, but that hopefully bend you towards achieving that and make you a better person and a better company and a better community as a result. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.